It is wonderful to see you here on this Resurrection Sunday. Church, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 John chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, there is one in the back of the pew in front of you, and you can take that home with you. Let that be your Bible and a gift from us this morning. If today is your first time to worship with us at Nansman River, my name is Ryan Bryce, and I'm the lead pastor here at this church, and we want you to know how grateful we are that you chose on this Easter Sunday to be here. Maybe a friend, a relative, a coworker, a neighbor invited you. Maybe you just drove by and saw our sign and thought, we want to go to a church on Easter. We're not only glad you're here, but we would love for you to come back. This is an incredible community of faith that meets here in this place. This church is not made up of bricks and mortar. This church is made up of the people of God here that meet at, on Bridge Road in North Suffolk. And we would love for you to meet with us every week. And so it is great to have you here. Uh, come and meet our Connect team after the service. I'll be outside and in the lobby with them. We'd love to get to hear your story and give you more information about our church. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I wanted to use something as an opening illustration, uh, a, an introduction to the sermon that I did not believe was real. I thought I was going to be describing something that I only see uh, in shows about Vikings and medieval England, but as I did some research, I found out that it was all too real of a practice. And that is the practice of demanding trial by combat. Have you ever heard of trial by combat? I've seen this on shows that take, you know, that are about things that happened, you know, a thousand years ago. And I thought it was make-believe, an invention of Hollywood, but it is not. For centuries throughout not only England and Western Europe, but pretty much all of Europe, if you were accused of a trial, you were accused of a crime where there were no credible witnesses, or if someone was filing a civil suit against you, you could demand to go to combat. To fight. And they believed that the winner was vindicated by God. And they had laws and they had rules for how this would play out. And over the centuries, these rules became more and more, um, uh, more and more defined to the point where you could even have someone stand in your place and fight for you. This was most common for children and women and the elderly. And in the 1100s, they passed a law allowing the clergy to have someone fight for them. I would have certainly appreciated that. This idea that I'm accused of a crime and I could have someone stand in my place. There were even wealthy families who kept champions. This is what the person was called, a champion. They kept champions on retainer. These were full-time employees whose only job was to fight for the family in case they were sued or accused of a crime. These, these practice eventually went the way of the dodo bird in the 1600s, but gave way to what we would know as duels and even gunfights of the Old West in our own country. It seems crazy to us, doesn't it, that guilt or innocence would be used the, uh, that fighting would be used to determine one's guilt or innocence. It would seem especially unfair that the wealthy could pay a champion to fight in their place. However, the idea of a champion taking someone's place uh, to determine guilt or innocence is exactly what we are here celebrating this morning. We are here because we believe that Jesus was sent by the Father to live a perfect life in our place. That Jesus went to the cross in our place 
that Jesus went to the grave in our place and that Jesus was resurrected in our place. Jesus is our champion. Our main idea of our sermon this morning is this, that Jesus lived and died in our place so that we could share in his life, death, and resurrection. I invite you to stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of God's word from 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read the first six verses of that chapter. This is the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered church of God celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who stood in our place doing something that we could not do. Father, we thank you for the picture of that in baptism, buried in the likeness of his death, but raised to walk in the newness of life given by salvation found in Christ alone. Father, we pray as we come to your word now that it will pierce our hearts, that we will be confronted with this very question. Have I believed in Jesus alone, living in my place? dying in my place, raised to life in my place so that I might be right with God. May every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room today answer that question before they leave, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was talking with one of our other elders this morning uh, as we were greeting people as they were coming in about the sermon. Can I just tell you, Easter sermons, uh, many times, and multiple of you have said this to me uh, this morning and throughout the years, this is your Super Bowl, isn't it? Well, kind of. There's more people here than normal. But can I tell you how I approach an Easter Sunday sermon? I just want to just kind of bear all for you. I'll use a football metaphor. My goal this morning is to simply run it up the middle. There's not going to be any trick plays, Okay. We're not running reverses. This is, we're not going to have a flea flicker. The halfback's not going to pass the ball. It's not fourth and 25, folks. This is a simple run up the middle. I want to be abundantly clear with you. Uh, my goal is not to try to trick you. My goal is not to try to persuade you. My simple goal is to tell you what Jesus Christ has done for you. For a preacher, that is like calling a halfback dive up the middle. Simple. Here's what I want you to know. That Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected in your place. 
We're going to approach this by looking at what would happen if Jesus had not done that. And there's two points. You see it if you grabbed one of the connectors with the sermon insert this morning. There's really two points to this sermon that are really simple. The first is this. Without Jesus, we have no hope for the forgiveness of sin. If, if Jesus did not come and live a perfect life and die a sinner's death and raised on the third day by the power of God, which we are here to celebrate this morning, then we have no hope for the forgiveness of our sin. If you have not put your faith alone in that fact that Jesus died for you, then you, my friend, have no hope for the forgiveness of sin. But here's the good news. What we have come to celebrate this morning about Jesus is not just an idea. It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected. I would say it is the most important historical fact in the history of the world that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is and he did exactly what the Bible says he did. So let's look here in 1 John and see what the Bible says about Jesus. John begins this section of his letter to the church by addressing, as he does in several places in this letter, his recipients as little children. This is not an insult. He's not speaking down to them. This is a term of endearment. It is John loving those who he is writing to. And he says this clearly to them in verse one, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John has a desire for the church, and that is that the church live in such a way that they are right with God, that they live obediently to God, that they live according to the righteousness and holiness of God, that they do what God has expected of his children. You may say, well, I do sin. Well, so do I. And here's the good news, John knows that, and he continues, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The first thing that we must do this morning is come to a realization that we are all sinners. Now, maybe you haven't been in church before, maybe you haven't been in church in a long time, and you're a little confused about that word sin, because it is certainly a church word, although you've likely heard it before. Maybe you don't understand what it means in the context of the scripture. So let me define it for you. Sin is any action or attitude that does not conform to the moral law of God. Sin is when we think, believe, and do things opposite of what God would want us to think, believe, or do. It speaks to our very nature, that we are by nature sinners. I include myself in that. I may stand up on this podium this morning preaching to you as the lead pastor of this church, but I am certainly not without sin, and neither are you. In the previous chapter of 1 John, he makes this clear to the church. Before he introduces this idea that he's writing to them so that they will not sin, he clearly states that they are all sinners. In verse 8 of 1 John 1, he says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then if you look one verse down in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. 
Most people in our culture, maybe many sitting in this room today, if you were asked about your own sin, about your own righteousness, you may say something like this, well, I'm a pretty good person. That's the typical answer that you get in our culture. You know, most people think of themselves as being pretty good. Most people think of themselves as being, you know, just above the bar. If, if, if the bar is kind of the average of how good people are, most people think of themselves as, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm nice to my family. I help out my neighbor. I don't, I don't cheat on my taxes much. I don't, you know, I don't steal from my employer. You know, I, 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 I do the things that I'm supposed to do, so I'm, I'm pretty good. But to claim to be a pretty good guy is both a lie to yourself and, according to 1 John 1, a claim that God is a liar. So if you're here this morning and you think of yourself as being a pretty good guy, let me, under, let, me let you know what the scripture is saying. In no uncertain terms, the Bible is saying that you are a liar and that you are calling God a liar. Make no mistake, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us in our action and attitude and our very nature have failed to conform to the moral law of God. None of us are a pretty good guy. There is none righteous, no, not one. And to claim to be so is to turn yourself into a liar and is to shake your fist at God and say, I am not who you say I am. So John is writing so that they will not sin, but he recognizes that we, are, that we all have sinned. So if anyone has sinned, he gives us the best news that I can tell you today, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, there's another term that maybe we need help understanding. The word advocate is one who pleads on behalf of another. In the United States, we call lawyers, lawyers. If I would have said that Jesus is our lawyer, you would have understood that. This phrase has a different context if we were to read this passage in England, because in England, lawyers aren't called lawyers, they're called advocates. It's a little bit better of a picture. It helps us, I think, see a little bit better what an advocate is. It's one who is speaking on behalf of someone else, particularly in a legal sense, that you're representing this person in a legal way. So if we consider the picture that John is painting for us here, this heavenly picture, this heavenly courtroom where the father is the judge in his righteousness and holiness, the justice that is demanded by his nature, we, the accused, every one of us, dead in our trespasses and sin, and yet we have an advocate, one who represents us. And who is the one who represents us? It is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there was a group of people that represented the people before God. They were known as the priests. The priests of the Old Testament would represent the people of God through the sacrificial system and the laws that God had given them. They would represent God before the people. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uh, gives us a a, a new way of thinking about the old sacrificial system and the old group of people that used to represent the people of God before God. And in Hebrews 7, we read this. The former priests, those were the Old Testament priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently 
because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the difference between the Old Testament priest and the New Testament priest. One was there were many Old Testament priests. There is now only one New Testament priest. I'm not a priest. I don't represent you. I don't represent this church before God. Jesus does that. The Old Testament priest would die. They were imperfect in their representation, but Jesus is perfect in his. He is our perfect advocate. Could you imagine if you were accused of doing something wrong and somebody told you, hey, I've got this lawyer and he never fails, he's never lost a case, you would go find that lawyer, wouldn't you? You would go hire that person. You want the person on your side that has never failed in their representation. And that is who we have in Jesus. He never fails. He is always able to save. This is what Hebrews 7 says. He is able to save to the uttermost, meaning you're not gonna get time served. You're not gonna get a slap on the wrist. You're not gonna get community service. You're going to be declared innocent in the eyes of God because Jesus is your perfect advocate. Jesus alone can represent us before God in this way because as 1 John 2 says, he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous makes him his righteousness makes him the perfect advocate for us. Back in Hebrews 7, verse 26 says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know, when a lawyer represents you in court, that lawyer has, is also a sinner. Maybe they haven't done anything to break the law. Would we believe that about all lawyers? Probably not. But Let's just assume that that lawyer you've hired has never break, broken the law, but they're still a sinner. Here's the great news about Jesus Christ, our advocate. He never sinned as like we do. He is the one who has lived exactly as the writer of the Hebrews says here, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. This is what John means when he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a righteous representative before almighty God, the man, Jesus Christ. And without him, we have no hope for salvation. John continues in verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is certainly a church word. If you're new to church, you probably maybe likely have never heard that word before. It is a word that means righteous sacrifice. It's, it, it, it's a combination of two ideas, that, that the sacrifice was the right sacrifice and that it was sacrificed. And this is what John affirms about Jesus is that he is the righteous sacrifice for our sins, but not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. In between those two verses in 1 John chapter 1 that talk about our sin, verse 8 that says if we say we're not without sin, we're a liar, and verse 10 that says if we say we're without sin, we're saying God is a liar. Sandwich in between those two verses is verse 9. And in verse 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Here's what I recognize. And I recognize this every, probably every Sunday that we gather, but certainly traditional Sundays uh, where we have larger crowds like Easter and around Christmas. There's likely somebody, many somebodies in this room today that think this is great for you people. And you genuinely mean it. I am glad that you, this church, me as a preacher, maybe even the friend or relative that brought you, I'm glad that you have found salvation in Jesus. But pastor, if you only know the things that I've done, if you only know where I've been, if you know what my history is, you would know that my sin is far too great for Jesus to forgive. My sin is far too great to be redeemed before God. You view yourself as irredeemable. When I was talking earlier about the average person in our culture thinks of themselves as a pretty good guy, you sat there and thought, not me. <laughs> That's not me. I don't think of myself as a pretty good guy. Actually, I'm the exact opposite. I, I don't think I am able to be saved because I am so rich. Because of the things that I have done, God could not love me. Jesus could not die for me. Hear the words of scripture today. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for sins of the whole world. Hear me, my friend, you are the whole world that Jesus died for. You, but preacher, you, I don't care, <laughs> you. You come up to me afterwards and you spill your guts and say, well, I've done this and that and the other. Here's what I'm going to say. I don't care. Jesus died for you. He died for you. And if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness. Not for the people that are in that above the bar 50% pretty good guy. Not for the people that got their lives straight before they came to church and put on nice clothes. For you, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness because without him, we have no other hope for forgiveness. Back in Hebrews chapter seven, the author of Hebrews there writes, he has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily for, for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So using that sacrificial system language, here's what the author of Hebrews says. Those Old Testament priests who were many and would die also had to first make sacrifices for themselves because they were sinners and not Jesus. Their sacrifices didn't wear out. Their sacrifices weren't temporary. Jesus, their, their sacrifices did wear out and were temporary. Jesus' sacrifice is not Temporary, it is eternal. Jesus' sacrifice is for all. It is for you. He offered himself up for you. We have an advocate who sacrificed himself in our place so that we could find forgiveness before God. And without him, we have no hope of that forgiveness. Number two, without Jesus, we have no hope for life transformation. There's a phrase, I don't know when this phrase was coined. You've heard it a lot over the last maybe five to 10 years. And it is the phrase, how to be the best version or be the best version of yourself. Have you heard that? I'm just trying to be the best version of myself. 
Man, that is some social media nonsense right there. You, but you hear people say it all the time. So I Googled that phrase this week, curious what would come up. And here's what I found among other things. I found from about six years ago, a Time Magazine article entitled, How to Be the Best Version of Yourself. And it had 21 action steps that you could take to be the best version of yourself. Now, maybe that appeals to you. Maybe you're like, wow, now we're getting into what I came for this morning, preacher. Make me a better person. Tell me what I could do to be a better person. Well, here's some of those things. You can exercise. Well, I'm out already. You can, I'm not making this up. You can network on Twitter. Twitter's never made a single person better. I can promise you. You can start a website. You can get a side hustle. I mean, they, how does this make anybody a better anything? It doesn't. So if, you're, if, that's the, if that's kind of the mode that you're in, listen, I'm not mocking you, I promise you. Because I think within us, something is saying, I really recognize that because of my sin, I need to do better. I need to be better. And unfortunately, there may be some people standing in pulpits this morning telling people, go do better and go be better. Here's what I'm going to tell you. On your own, it's absolutely impossible for you to do better and be better. Without Jesus, there is no hope for us to do better. Without Jesus, you can network on Twitter and exercise and get up early and start a website and drive for Uber all you want to, but you're still not going to be any better. But with Jesus, <laughs> with Jesus, there is total and complete life transformation. Jesus is our only hope for a better self. Jesus, not Twitter, is our hope. He is our hope. Listen to what John says in verse three. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. What John does for us here as he transitions from our hope as Jesus, our advocate, he transitions to an introspective look into our lives. And here is what he proposes. Look at your life to know if you're in Jesus or not. He doesn't say that you're gonna have it all figured out. He doesn't say that you're still not going to be a work in progress, that Jesus is still going to be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, refining you into his image, helping you to put off sin and put on the righteousness of Christ. But we sure, certainly can look and ask this question, am I in him? Well, here's how I know if I am in him. I keep his commandments. You say, why would we tie those things together? Why wouldn't I just this morning preach on the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and end there? Because these ideas are intricately tied together in scripture. Our forgiveness and our righteousness are inseparable ideas. We don't have one without the other. And we don't gain forgiveness because of our righteousness. But when we experience the forgiveness of God, he does something else amazing for us. You see, on the cross of Calvary, a great exchange took place. Jesus, the perfect son of God, died in your place, bearing your sin. We've seen that this morning. But do you know what else he does? He gives to you at your very worst he gives to you the righteousness that he earned in his 
perfect life. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Notice the connection, this inseparable connection between these two things, that we die to sin and live to righteousness. When we experience the forgiveness of God, he gives us his righteousness. And then it gives us an ability to look within ourselves and ask this question, am I walking in the righteousness of God? John clarifies for us, he moves further. Verse four, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. For the second time in two chapters, John says you have the ability to, to make yourself out to be a liar. In chapter one, it's if you say I have no sin. In chapter two, it's you're saying I know him but I'm not going to live for him. I know him, I've experienced the salvation of Jesus, but I'm going to live however I want to live. My sins he bore on the cross, but I'm not concerned about his righteousness lived out in my life. John says, if you say you know him, you will do what he says. You will live out his righteousness because the love of God has been perfected in you. I said, you know, I came this morning to get uplifted. <laughs> you've called me a sinner and you've called me a liar. And you've said, just hear me. First off, you're not mad at me. You're mad at the Bible. It's okay. But there's great hope here, folks. There's great hope for us. If we can fully understand the work of Jesus on the cross and resurrected from the tomb in our place, it not only means that we are able to be forgiven before God, but it also means that we are able to live in such a way that no one else in this world can live, that we can live in the righteousness of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter five writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, my friend, you can be a better version, but not a better version of yourself. You can be like Jesus. That's far better than you could ever hope to be on your own. That's far better than any 21-step program could make you. You can be like Jesus, and Jesus died and was raised from the grave so that it might be possible, so that you might be the righteousness of God. Also, the Apostle Paul writing in Philippians chapter three, he says this, it's a little lengthy, stay with me. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. Now let's just stop there for a second. I'm gonna pick up in verse seven, but let me just explain to you what we've read. We've read the apostle Paul's pedigree because maybe you still think, <laughs> we're getting to the end here, and maybe you still think, well, I have a righteousness on my own. I really can. I can go to church enough. I can, I can give to the poor enough. I can treat people good enough. Maybe I can do it. Listen to this. You were, you, nobody in this room was as good at keeping the law as the apostle Paul was. Nobody. 
right? This is what he's saying. Pharisee of a Pharisee. I mean, this guy had the law down. And here's what he says in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings because like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Make no mistake, my friends. Your own earthly righteousness won't get you there. Your own self-help program won't get you there. Even simply obeying the Bible outside of faith in Jesus won't get you there. To know the power of his resurrection begins by admitting that you cannot do it, but that Jesus did. Hear me, church. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then our sins aren't forgiven. Righteousness isn't available and we have no hope. But what we gathered to get together this morning to celebrate is reality. Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave. And because of that, we share in his life, death, and resurrection. We join with the apostle Paul in saying that I have forsake everything in this life as rubbish as worthless so that I might attain the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what? The resurrection of Jesus ensured forgiveness of sin, full righteousness, and the promise of eternal life for all who believe. You may hear this this morning say, preacher, what do I need to do? Is there an amount of money that I need to give? Is, is there an aisle I need to walk? Is there, is, is there a class I need to take? What, what do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. You ready? Not a 21-step program. One step. Believe. <laughs> believe. This is what you need to do. Because for all who believe, forgiveness of sin, full righteousness, and a promise of eternal life, sharing in the resurrection of Jesus is available to you this morning. If you, my friend, will just believe. At the end of his letter, in chapter five, John writes this, whoever believes, get this, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar. God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne according to his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I just want to, as clearly as I can, help you to understand this today. God creator of all there is, perfect in all of his purposes, actions, to the very nature of his being, created this world, you part of it, knowing that we would sin, knowing that that sin, because of his nature, would separate us from him. 
And yet he sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to live a life that you could not live, to die a death that you deserved. And then on bright and early on that Easter Sunday morning, resurrected him from the grave, making him the first fruit of resurrection that is promised to all who believe. So what do you need to do to enjoy this forgiveness and righteousness and promise of eternal life? Simply believe today. You say, what what does it mean to believe? It means to believe that the Bible says you're a sinner and that you're a sinner. It means to believe that the Bible says that Jesus died in your place, taking your sin, but not only taking your sin, giving you his righteousness. Believe that today. And if you don't die later today and you wake up tomorrow, Begin walking in that righteousness. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, showing that we know him, showing that we have received his forgiveness and his righteousness as he died in our place. In a moment, I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond, to tell God in this moment that I believe And after I pray, I'll give you further instructions. So let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would work in the lives of people whom he has probably already been working in to the point of bringing them here this morning and they hear the truth of the gospel, this good news of Jesus, that he died in our place, bearing our sin offering us his righteousness for all who believe. For those who would believe this morning, God, would you move in their lives to bring them from death to life? For those that you'd say, I I want to believe today, what you do in this moment is you say to God, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that Jesus is my only hope for salvation and righteousness. And I believe in him and I want to live for him for the rest of my life. If you've done that towards God today, my friend, you have believed unto salvation. The next best step that you can have is to tell someone. Most of our pastors will be out in the lobby, will be outside as you're getting ready to leave. Would you just come find one of us? Would you come find me? If I'm talking to somebody else, I'll point you to someone else. Because we'd love to be able to share with you about how our church can help you in this new walk with Jesus. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. And we pray, God, that you will continue to move as we respond now. In Jesus' name, amen.